0: ask you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I remind you that we're studying the Ten Commandments. Now, you might find that a little bit of a disjuncture. You say, wait a minute, the Ten Commandments, I think, are in the Old Testament. Indeed, you're right. The statement of them we've been looking at is in Exodus 20. Two weeks ago, we came to the seventh commandment by which God defined marriage and defines the proper arena For our expression as sexual beings, a man and woman together in the castle stronghold of marriage. Now, yes, I've taken what you might call a side path. I don't think of it that way exactly. Because the commandment was, You shall not commit adultery. And the broadest understanding of adultery is sexual activity outside of marriage. And therefore, I decided last Sunday and this Sunday to look at. The very much current topic of same sex attraction and the actions on that topic that people take and defend today. We looked at Romans chapter 1 last time. I look now at a relevant passage, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning at 9. Listen to God's word. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So glorify God in your body. The name Rosaria is unusual enough that it might be one you could readily remember. And I would dare say that if you ever read the story of a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, you will find her and everything about her to be unforgettable. In her 2012 book titled The Secret Thoughts, of an unlikely convert. Write it down if you want to. The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Rosaria Butterfield wrote a riveting short book. It's about 150 pages, I think. I picked it up after dinner one night and read almost all of it without stopping. I couldn't put it down. Rosaria Butterfield finished her PhD in English literature and was... Established at Syracuse University as a tenured professor of literature, teaching 19th century literature, Jane Austen, Emily Bronte, and those kinds of things. But also, she taught in what was called feminist studies. And she considered herself, not only academically, but in her life, as a representative of what you and I would see as a pretty extreme feminist viewpoint. There was no secret whatsoever about the fact that Rosaria Butterfield was a lesbian. She had a live-in partner. She gave her life and her passion and her speaking to forward the cause of the gay and lesbian community. Rosaria regarded evangelical Christians and what she would have called their narrow views as something out of the Stone Age. She thought that Christians who took the Bible seriously were people who came to gay pride parades and yelled out ugly slogans. That was her whole experience anyway, whereas her homosexual friends were intelligent, hospitable, and encouraging people. Well, one day she met a couple who were not from the gay community. Ken and his wife named Floyd. It happens that Ken was a pastor of the Syracuse branch of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, a very conservative psalm singing group. And Ken and Floy, through some circumstances, had Rosaria for dinner, got to know her, began to talk with her about the biblical position of these matters. And she was totally amazed that they were able to do that with courtesy calmly representing their view, accepting her as a person, and yet very clearly not accepting her views on sexuality. And in fact, they became friends in short order. And they visited, they had dinners, they had many exchanges, and Rosario began to read the Bible. Very interesting that a a literature professor would finally read the Bible. She hadn't read it before that very much. And she tells, as her story develops, how the day came. It was a couple of years along. This didn't happen immediately. But in a couple of years, the day came when Rosaria prayed. And she says, here's what I said. I, I asked God if the gospel message was for somebody like me, butch haircut and all. And I viscerally felt that day when I asked him the, the presence of the living God. She said, Jesus seemed present and alive. And I asked him, hardly knowing what I was doing, to take all that I had, my sexuality, my academic pride in being a professor, my career, my friends, my tomorrows. And he did. Now, it would be nice if we could say that conversion just magically and immediately changed everything about Rosaria's sexual desires and, and friendships and all of that. No, that was a process. In fact, she says, far from a happily ever after moment, my conversion would better be compared to a train wreck in all of the upheaval that it caused in my life. But she concluded this, and by the way, this lady is today the, a pastor's wife. She said, nobody chooses Christ. Christ chooses you or you're dead. After Christ chooses you, you respond because you must, period. Now, I've said I'm speaking for the second and last time on the Bible's view of same-sex attraction and relationships today. Last time, I want to remind you, we looked at the probably clearest pillar, cornerstone, whatever word you want to use to emphasize it, keystone text of the New Testament on this subject, Romans 1. Interestingly, Rosaria said when she she first, you know, as a lesbian, encountered Romans 1, she said, I thought somebody had hit me in the head with a sledgehammer. I never knew that the Bible said those things. Romans 1 talks about how our desires for people of the same sex are actually a direct consequence of the darkened mind of human sinfulness, rebelling against God. It's not the way God made me. That text certainly denies that popular idea. Romans 1 says that homosexual attraction is the way people make themselves when their minds are not thinking straight, when they don't even understand the identity of a man and the identity of a woman as God created them to be. Same-sex attraction is not an offshoot of creation. Romans 1 says it's an offshoot of the fall. And there's all a difference in the world in that. It's an offshoot of our disobedience and our unwillingness to know God. It is, in fact, a form of false worship, exalting the creature over the Creator. Well, that's Romans 1, and last time we declared that truth, it's a hard truth for many to hear. It sounds like condemnation, and some will call it hate speech. Call it what you will. It's the Word of God. Today, I look at a second vital text, and here are some other direct words that chime in with the understanding of where this all comes from, but I think probably more so make it clear that there is real hope. There is real hope for those who will surrender and repent before Christ and seek his wonderful salvation and awaken to a clear-sighted view of these things as Rosaria once did and see God change their life. First of all, this morning, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 tells us this. The power of the cross redeems those who once were called unrighteous in their unrepentant immorality. Verse 9 uses a term that people will not like, I suppose, when it says a blunt statement. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, certainly you want to know then who is unrighteous. Well, you find a list of things, not just those who have a same-sex attraction in their lives, although that's there, twice the sexually immoral, those who practice homosexuality, but it's a mixed list. It includes thieves, greedy people, drunkards, drunkard swindlers, and so on. In fact, the list is such that it makes it very clear that it's listing a lot of things that people do and continue to do that they practice doing with impunity and with defensiveness, and would say, I'm not really doing anything wrong. This is just me. The unrighteous, those who are captive to these kinds of things, cannot be part of the kingdom of God, says God's author, Paul. And, of course, those who indulge in unnatural passions are included in this list. Now, we would not believe, given the thrust of this passage, that that necessarily includes the person who merely is dealing with attraction to other people, other of the same gender, and doesn't practice it, doesn't act it out, or that person who perhaps has some fall in that area in their life on one occasion and is full of remorse and, and repents before God and says, oh, God, that was so wrong, I'm, I'm ashamed. It's directed at the person, and I I I think it correctly interprets the Greek in verse 9 when it says, those who practice homosexuality, those for whom this is their way of life and who say, this is my life. Don't tell me this is wrong. To them come these crucial words that give a title to today's message. As Paul says, Look over that list for a moment that I've just given you because I know you people in Corinth. I've been among you. I'm writing to you. I can see your faces in my mind. Of such were some of you. But you're not that way anymore. You're not the unrighteous who are condemned and who are outside the kingdom of God. You are, in fact, my brethren. Now, Paul was reminding them what he knew only too well, that Corinth was a city on the peninsula of Greece, a seaport city that was infamous for its immorality. Uh, Of all the cities, it was a large city in the ancient world. People crisscrossed there from all over the place on ships and roads coming through. And boy, if you wanted to get involved in vice of almost any kind, you could find it somewhere in Corinth. Paul knew that the Christian church that had grown up in that city contained many people who had a past, whatever it was. Maybe they were thieves. Maybe they were drunkards. uh, They were immoral in some other way. They beat their wives. Some of them, of course, were practicing homosexuals, people with a past, you know, Greece was a glorious civilization. It had mostly passed its glory by Paul's time. Rome was the big civilization in Paul's day. But the Greeks, of course, were tremendous in their contributions to the arts, to literature, to the science of politics and government, uh, many ways in which they had a highly developed, wonderful civilization. But the Greek civilization had a really big dark side, and it came out particularly in the waning decades of that civilization as man and boy relationships were infamous. And the Greeks developed homosexuality to a high level the lower their society went. That is saying then, as Paul writes to this Christian church, that Corinthian elders, Corinthian deacons, Corinthian men and women who were now full-fledged, warm-hearted believers in Christ, some of them had been Former active practitioners of homosexuality. But Paul says no more. You're no longer labeled unrighteous. But why? Because Christ has remade you. You've been born anew. He uses a triplicate verb here to emphasize it. God did something. They didn't do it, God did it. He washed them, He sanctified them. He justified them. Those three words, we could study their meanings carefully and break it down. I'm not going to. Just take it as a whole, as a description of the work of salvation of Christ. God changed you completely. One commentator says there are a few more exciting, energizing statements in the entire New Testament than this little phrase, and such were some of you. Because people that Paul called my brethren, my dear friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, God has set you free from the stranglehold of a various octopus with many arms of various vices, and he's made you new. You are no longer the unrighteous. You're the righteous. And 1 Corinthians 6.11 is a testimony of the power of the cross to transform people who once were captives to many forms of spiritual death. Well, let's go on from that then. Secondly, to see this in verses 13 and following in particular. The Lordship of Christ brings with it a new calling to sexual purity, sexual holiness. I want to back off here, first of all, and actually jump out of 6 and go back to chapter 5, which I didn't read from. If you have a Bible open, glance at chapter 5 at the early part. I'm not going to take the time it would require to read through it, but let me just paraphrase or describe what's going on because the reason Paul got going on this whole issue of, of sexual morality in the first place was a particular problem in the Corinthian church. There was a man committing incest, with his father's, whether it was his father's present wife or she was then a widow or what was going on. It was an improper relationship. It was really incest. And Paul says, this is going on. You're tolerating it. You need to discipline this man. And if he will not repent, you need to put him out of your fellowship. And then you notice what he says, something interesting as he gets down to verse 9, and it's relevant to chapter 6 and why I'm taking a moment for it here. Let me just read starting at five nine. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, if we just stop there, that would say if you know somebody who says they're gay, don't ever associate with them. They're bad. Paul is not saying that because look at how he writes here. It's very important. I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people, dash, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, because to do that, you'd have to leave the world. There's a little bit of humor there. Paul's saying, if I'm telling you don't ever associate with a sinful person, my goodness, you'd have to be sealed in an airtight capsule and never go out anywhere. I'm not telling you that. What is he telling them? Verse 11, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of Brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolater, reviler, drunkard, etc., what is he saying? He's saying, "Look, the serious issue is, if somebody says, I'm, "I'm in Christ, Christ is Lord of my life, I'm His new creation." Oh, but, you know, homosexuality? Why, sure. That's how God made me. Paul says, "No, no, no, and no. I'm telling you not to associate with that person. That person has some serious repenting to do before God because it's incompatible to say you're going to persistently practice things that are outside the good pleasure of God and yet say, Christ is my Lord. All right, jump back from five into six again. And now I'm speaking from approximately the end of verse 13 onward where the apostle says, look, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing for the sake of time, he's saying being a Christian isn't just what you say with your mind. Jesus is Lord. Oh, yes, Lord, I love you. Thank you for making me a Christian. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for rising from the dead. I love you. I'm a Christian. Paul is saying it's not just what happens with your mind. It includes your body. And what he says in so many words here in this passage is that What you do with your body matters to God. Verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord. Verse 15, will you take members of Christ and join them to a prostitute? Paul is saying, look, when you have a sexual union with somebody, you're being intimate with that person in a way that if it was a marriage, ordained and and pleasing to God would be a, a delightful thing glorifying to him. But if it is outside of God's will, what are you doing? You're taking that which belongs to Christ and dragging it into the gutter. And he he tells us in so many words here that, look, your body is something that's going to survive this life. Verse 14, God raised the Lord and he will raise us up by his power. You see, he's saying it was in a body that Jesus came It was a body in that manger in Bethlehem, a real human body. It was in a body that Jesus obeyed the Lord in the desert and resisted temptation. It was in a body that he went to the cross and suffered searing pain on your behalf. It was in a body he died, and in a body he rose, and in a body that he was glorified to the right hand of God. Your body, too, is going to be glorified like that. Do you think God doesn't care about your body He gave his son a body, and he gave you one like it. He cares about your body. He cares about what you do with it. And Paul said, don't you understand? You're dealing with the temple of Christ. You're dealing with the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. God must rule what you do with your body. Worship him with your body just as you do with your mind. Then he comes to something quite abrupt in verse 18. There's kind of a full stop at the end of 17 and a declarative imperative sentence at the beginning of 18 as he gives practical advice. He says, look, if if all of this is too highfalutin and high-flown for you, let me speak very bluntly, very clearly. You'll all understand what I'm about to say. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. He doesn't say, uh, see if you can find a counselor out there in the great realm of counselors where people will counsel you to do almost anything if you knock at the right door, and see if you can find somebody to counsel you to say that, you know, homosexual practice is just okay for a Christian. No, he says, if you encounter that practice, flee from it. It's been my habit from time even before I was pastor here that if a pastor came to work beside me in a church as an assistant or associate, the first thing I do in sitting down with that man and getting to know him is talk to him about relations that he will have with those he will counsel with, deal with as a pastor, many of whom will be women. And I say, look, brother, you need a code to live by. You need a code that says the evil one would love nothing better than to bring you down in disrepute. And you don't necessarily have to be messing around sexually with somebody to be brought down. All you have to do is get into a situation where enough people put two and two together and think it equals four, and a word goes out about you. So my word to you as my fellow pastor is flee. Don't get there in the first place into any situation where somebody is going to see something suspect between you and a person of the other sex. Flee from it. 1 Corinthians 6.18 demands from a believer that the moment we start daydreaming about same-sex attraction, the moment we start indulging a little bit of a relationship with that woman or man, that we shouldn't really be having any kind of relationship other than business or whatever it happens to be, You know, all these chat room things and Facebook things and all this stuff today. You all know what I'm talking about. It says flee. Turn your eyes in the other direction. Turn off the computer. Turn off the TV. Confess what's going on to the Lord. If necessary, get somebody else involved, a wise pastor or a very trusted Christian friend to whom you can say, look, I'm concerned. I seem to be tempted in this area. I need somebody I can talk to to hold me accountable. Husbands, if you can't handle all the junk that's on the internet, there's one easy way. I've said this before. I'll say it again. Every computer has a, a history file. And if your wife doesn't know where that is, you can show her where that is and say, my wife, my relationship to you is precious enough that I want you, without telling me in advance that you're going to do it regularly, to go and check this history file to see where I've been on the internet because I want it to be an open book that I'm not dwelling in all the garbage that's there, all the pornography that's there. I want you to know where I've been. Husbands, are you willing to have your wife be involved in that? And if you're not, why not? That's called accountability. Do you remember Joseph? In Genesis 39, it tells of Potiphar's wife, his boss's wife. The boss was away. And she says, Hey, Joseph, you're a pretty good looking young man. My bedroom's right over here. Meet you there in 15 minutes. Joseph ran as fast as he could go. That's God's simple advice when we see sexual immorality in our path. Run! Get out of there! Turn around and go in the other direction. Refuse it. Remove yourself. Don't let even the first hint of it get established in your life. That's a Christian's calling to holiness and sexual morality. Well, as a concluding point, I need to emphasize the last two verses of this passage, 19 and 20, because, Christian, there's something great here and something that contradicts the world in in diametrical terms when it tells us you no longer own your body. You see, that's a fundamental premise of the whole homosexual movement, of of immorality of every kind. It's saying, who are you to tell me anything? Who said your Bible could dictate to Get your Bible out of my bedroom. I'm a free agent. I can do what I want. If I find something to be pleasurable and helpful to me and I'm not really hurting anybody, why can't I do it? That's the big argument. You hear that everywhere. Me and me and me. Me first, my pleasure, my rights. What does the Bible say? Christian, you do not own your body. Isn't that an amazing thing to take in? Read it there. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 1.18 says the same thing. You were bought with the precious blood of Christ. You're a new creation. You belong to someone. He's your master. He's your Lord. He has a right to command you. Why would you want to say I am a sovereign state existing apart from him? Let me see if I can summarize what I've said these two Sundays because I'm leaving this subject now to go on to the other commandments next week, Lord willing. In the first place last week, I said to you from Genesis 2 that the marriage, or this was two weeks ago, I said the marriage of a man and woman is the sole God-ordained arena for fulfillment of sexual delight. God made our sexuality. He takes delight in it when it's practiced his way. Secondly, last week we saw in Romans 1 that mistaken identity confusion of same-sex attraction is a direct consequence of rebellion against God, losing sight of God's image in us. That's the Bible's diagnosis, like it or not. This week, from 1 Corinthians 6... We see that there is always grace and forgiveness in the cross. Isn't the cross the place we always go back to? Is it possible to make a new start? You know, if you're so disgusted with your life and you're in this thing so deep, you think you can never get out of it, you might as well just stay the way you are. The Bible says, oh, no. Paul was able to write to people and say, such were some of you. You were. You're not now. Because Christ made you new. He can put that old nature to death. People, God did not create anyone to spend a lifetime in the hollow pursuit of same-sex attraction. To claim that he did is without scientific support. Show me the science. It's not there And it is contrary to Scripture, and it is insulting to the good creator who made us to glory and delight in him and to reflect his image. The woman I mentioned earlier, Rosaria Butterfield, offered up her indulgence of unnatural passion to Jesus, her new Lord. And she says a new love took control of her. A change gradually came over her. She said it didn't all happen overnight. She said a lot of things had to be rooted out and chased down and killed and and taken by the neck and even strangled. Here's what she said Rosaria wrote Sexual sin is predatory. It lurks in your heart, as God told Cain, and waits to grab you by the throat to get you to do its bidding. She said it has to be killed. And she said, healing for the sexual sinner is a form of death. Every day I had to die until eventually I could look back and see that I was not drawn by those same things anymore. Although I'm now married and a mother of several children, she wrote, marriage alone did not redeem my sin. Jesus did that. Jesus does that, ladies and gentlemen. He does it when you offer your life day by day, situation by situation, and say, Lord, I want to glorify you. Romans 12.1 is my last word. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices holy, set-apart, and acceptable to God, for this is your spiritual worship. Amen. Our Father, we live in the midst of a swamp, and in the swamp, there are lies in all directions. Lies that people are calling out with megaphones and high powered amplifiers, telling people what is not true. Thank you that your word is truth. Thank you above all that you do not simply erect your law and let it condemn us and fall on us like a ton of bricks, but because of the cross, because of Jesus. We don't have to be in that group of people called the unrighteous. We can be in that group of whom Paul would say, such were some of you. I pray today for the person who's struggling in this area. I know they're here. I pray for that person in the many faceted difficulties of this subject, that you would show them your power, Show them your calling. Give them your strength to lay it all down before Jesus Christ. Amen.